13th PX podcast. My name is Jess Nennon and I'm joined by my colleague Peter Jewell. Big thank you to our sponsor, Victorian Planning Reports, for sponsoring us thus far. We've been very fortunate through this journey to interview some of the industry's best, and today is no different. I'm very pleased to introduce Bryce Rayworth, Heritage Architect. Bryce, can you please give a brief overview of your background and experience, please? Yes, uh, I commenced my studies at the University of Melbourne in architecture, um, and then uh, joined to that an arts degree in fine arts and classics. I then uh, undertook a Master of Architecture uh, with a thesis on uh, housing involved in the interwar periods and the evolution of style in that period. And it was during that time that I started to become involved in heritage matters through the National Trust and through a number of small commissions. And then I subsequently studied overseas uh, a couple of brief um, courses, one in Rome and one in Venice, and, and I set up my own practice 25 years ago. Bryce, going back to uni, how did the conservation, how did the, the start in conservation architecture begin? Uh, well, two of my lecturers at Melbourne University, Miles Lewis and George Tibbetts, were uh, particular mentors to me in terms of uh, drawing me into um, the sphere of conservation, uh, their, inf- inf- their enthusiasm and knowledge uh, encouraged me to uh, take on particular subjects that then um, brought my own interest and ultimately led me to take up this career. And can you talk to your time in Venice and Rome? Yes, my, um, in, in 1994 I was uh, lucky enough to undertake the Certificate of Architectural Conservation at the International School for Conservation in Rome, and I was then fortunate enough to have a scholarship from the Palladio Foundation to study stone conservation in Venice in 2006. Each of these courses was tremendously helpful for me in uh, attenuating my knowledge and understanding of conservation practices, both in relation to the conservation of buildings and also the broader philosophical precepts of um, urban conservation. Mm-hmm. And Bryce, in Venice, room with a view? Oh, well, well, of course, room with a view is really set in Florence, but uh, both Venice and uh, Rome did uh, uh, broaden an interest that I already had because of my studies at Melbourne Uni in uh, Roman and Renaissance art and architecture and, um, and they remain uh, two very beloved places. And you've got, a history, you've got a background in archaeology, and uh, can you describe some of your experiences? Yes, in the late 80s and early 90s, I went on uh, uh, archaeological digs in Syria at three different times, four months each time. We uh, were excavating Hellenistic and uh, Middle Bronze Age sites, and that was a tremendous experience. It was wonderful to work on, on archaeological sites and trenches with lots of local people who were essentially uh, Bedouin people. We lived in small villages uh, with limited electricity and running water. It was a wonderful experience in that level. It was terrific experiencing one of the oldest cities in the world in Aleppo, which was our closest major city, and also regular visits to Damascus. They were wonderful cities and 
unfortunately very heavily impacted by the current war in Aleppo, I understand now is essentially in ruins and almost all of the things that we loved have disappeared. But that experience reinforced the importance of cultural patrimony to our society. And uh, that, that marriage with your study in the classics at, at uni as well? Absolutely, that's how I came into it because I've been studying classics and one of my Latin lecturer was an archaeologist and he invited me to go along as the team architect. Um, being involved in the trenches during the day and then in the evenings um, doing drawings of the elevations of the trenches that have been excavated. I know for decades you've spent in the heritage sphere. Can you describe some of the major changes that have occurred? Well, the most major change, I would say, is the, um, the extent of heritage controls that has been introduced, the sheer number of buildings that are identified either by Heritage Victoria under the Heritage Act or by local planning schemes for individual interest, uh, and more particularly even the huge expanse of heritage precincts that have been introduced in the period that I've been a consultant in this area. Uh, it's gone from, for example, in Fitzroy, uh, which is all of Fitzroy is essentially a heritage precinct now. At the beginning of my uh, practice, it was uh, the, the heritage areas were restricted to a number of portions of streets. So uh, the sheer extent of heritage controls that are in place is one of the big challenges. Another is the rise of the heritage advisor role in planning applications. Uh, the outset of my practice, most um, applications for works in heritage places were simply made by an architect, perhaps by a town planner, and they would often struggle to come to grips with heritage policies and heritage ideas. Um, and they would make an application to a council where the town planners also would often struggle. Um, most council, uh, some councils then started to introduce heritage advisors over a period of time. Now all councils have heritage advisors and very often town planning applications in relation to heritage places are accompanied by a privately uh, uh, a private uh, consultant report prepared on behalf of the applicant. Mm -hmm. So that's a huge change that's taken place. Do you think there's a greater appreciation for heritage these days, particularly in town planning applications? Oh, absolutely. Like I think at the beginning of my time, it was seen as a bit of a, um, uh, a curious uh, and, and uh, unimportant element of planning, and now it's seen as being fairly central. Uh, and in a sense, it's parallel to, although not directly related to, the way that uh, ESD type things have arisen. You know, the outset of my career, people thought, oh, well, you know, you're a bit of a lunatic if you're too, too intensely focused on that, whereas mm -hmm. now it's just broadly accepted as a requirement. Yeah. Uh, in the earlier phases of heritage conservation, there was a desire to minimise the new, and uh, this was overtaken by the desire to contrast the new and old. How does it sit now, do you think? Or do you think that's a fair description of the decades? Well, to some extent, um, I think you know, back in the 1980s, when, for example, the city of Melbourne introduced the first very well uh, set out heritage policies and controls, they were designed to essentially result in, in minimal change. And that's in the context of 
a, a broader inner metropolitan area where essentially, which was essentially in a state of stasis. There wasn't a lot of change taking place. Of course, there's been a revolution in our expectations of what the inner city will accommodate now, and that's led to all sorts of different pressures. There's also been a kind of revolution in the expectations of individuals and families uh, with the rise of, you know, very large houses uh, which are being crammed into small inner urban sites. So um, that has changed. Uh, along the way also, there's been a sort of uh, rise in the notion that you can accommodate almost anything by simply creating a contrast between the new and the old. Um, I think that's a, a very superficial misunderstanding of the heritage objective that you should be able to distinguish between new and old, but it doesn't need to be uh, what Prince Charles characterised as a sort of carbuncle on the face. Mm -hmm. It can be um, a, a fairly gentle or um, polite type of interface rather than a, a stark contrast. Talking of Prince Charles, um, he, had, he was very much against a modern approaches to architecture, and some of his critics have said that he's into some pastiche or pastiche or nostalgic view of the past. I don't think Prince the Prince is listening, but what do you think of that argument? Um, I, look, I think uh, those criticisms, on the one hand, those criticisms are valid, and particularly they're valid if you think that he's advocating a universal application of those principles. Um, they wouldn't translate very well to some environments in Australia or even to some environments within Great Britain but, uh, or the UK. But they, um, on the other hand, they are principles that I think can be very uh, reasonably applied in certain environments and they're typically the environments where he has applied them. So uh, I think his, his intervention in the debate about new works in London um, tends to be less successful and, and less um, relevant, but his um, view about what might be appropriate in, in, in the uh, rural countryside of, of the UK, I think, is, is at least legitimate, even if it's also reasonable that other people might have another view and you might be quite reasonable to have other outcomes in some circumstances. Mm. And, Going back to that classification, Bryce, a different classification approaches influence heritage outcomes. Can you talk to the two different approaches, the first being a differentiation or fine grading of buildings and streetscapes, and the second might be called a more collective approach? Yes. Uh, the very early conservation studies tended to have a gradation of um, gradings from A down to E or F, meaning that there were uh, five or six different uh, levels of significance, A being potentially state significance and E or F being um, uh, typical representative buildings that have been very altered or extremely altered. And the change that has been happening in recent times is towards a, a, a smaller number of gradations, essentially having significant contributory and, and outside both of those grading systems, non-contributory buildings. I think that um, while 
there is something to be said for having certainly a universal system that's applied in all municipalities in a reasonably consistent manner, and that's what is being sought through the significant contributory system um, uh, in, in recent times, that there was a, a great benefit to be gained from a wider range of, um, of ratings. It was, uh, it, it, it provided a, great, a greater range of nuance in terms of understanding the significance of the place. If you knew the difference between an A-grade building and a D-grade building, and then if you also had a streetscape grading, whether it was level one, level two, level three, and then if you had policy that was designed to provide for different outcomes according to those grading systems, that was a particularly fine-tuned response to the borough charter and what it encourages us to do, i.e. to identify what is the significance for a place and to what degree is it is significant and then to allow uh, change or to prevent change in a measured manner uh, responding to that type of significance and that degree of significance. I think that when we go to a system where there are no streetscape gradings and when there's only significant or contributory or non-contributory, that that um, uh, is a less attenuated, less refined tool. And with the um, Victorian planning provisions uh, having so uh, much capacity for uh, subjective judgments, uh, where they're not prescriptive, but rather they encourage a, a sort of a, a broad overview and a subjective judgment to be made. Uh, I think that simplification of grading systems is inevitably going to lead to um, a greater number of uh, conflicts over outcomes and whether they meet policies or don't meet. Do you think there's a crossover between preferred neighbourhood character? Heritage controls, in a way, have been used to influence preferred neighbourhood character. Yes, well, I think uh, it's interesting that in the 1990s, quite a few of the inner and middle ring municipalities might have been characterised as being anti-conservation. They were very reluctant to introduce heritage controls and uh, to police them in any way, and they often took matters into their own hands and, and gave permits for things that their officers felt were inappropriate with regard to heritage considerations on the basis that they were good for business or whatever. Um, but those, many of those same municipalities are now the most vociferous in their application of, of heritage controls and in fact in their extension of heritage controls, and it's hard not to draw the conclusion that that's at least in part due to the fact that that's popular with residents who wish to protect residential amenity. And so um, the, the ever-increasing number of heritage precincts is um, able to be related to a desire to protect neighbourhood uh, neighbourhoods, and in particular residential neighbourhoods. Do you know how some of the other states deal with heritage and you know, how they protect their... Um, heritage streetscapes or heritage buildings? Is it a similar system to Victoria? By and large, um, there has been an increasing homogeneity in the application of controls uh, between the states. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of uh, liaison at a high level between, for example, the heads of the heritage councils in each state. And, and um, so while there was 
a considerable diversity, really, in the past, that's less and less the case. Of course, there are still some places where the application of controls is probably less um, thorough or, or, or less wide than it is in Victoria or in New South Wales. For example, Tasmania, uh, ostensibly for funding reasons perhaps, is still struggling to um, identify places to the same extent and to perhaps place controls over places to the same extent. But by and large, the same approach is adopted or, or, or in each state uh, they are seeking to adopt similar approaches. And there's been a lot of um, talk in the media recently about heritage and houses that have been allegedly pulled down without permits and whatnot. Um, do you think the media simply pander to prejudices? I think they do. I think the media is um, the captive of its own sort of sound bite, and so uh, it's hard to compress a sort of detailed analysis of issues relating to conservation uh, in you know a, a, a short uh, television item, or even in a relatively short newspaper item. And of course, the, uh, the the fast turnaround requirements in these matters, you know, where there's deadlines, not even daily now, but by the hour, uh, for breaking news, is such that people just rush to get out information without really looking deeply into things. Price, the, the planning system must balance competing interests. For example, the need for greater densification, as opposed to heritage conservation. Do you think the two can coexist? And also, there's ESD. Yes. Well, I think that um, the drive for uh, increased accommodation and, uh, and greater densification is something that was not anticipated 20 years ago when many heritage controls were being drafted. And so the types of outcomes that are now being seen or that are now being anticipated in new planning controls being prepared by inner metropolitan councils can come as somewhat of a shock to people who are used to dealing with uh, the old regimes and the old policies. There is inevitably a degree of compromise required. There's no doubt that um, the desire to provide new levels of accommodation um, within places like Bridge Road in Richmond or Chapel Street in, in uh, Pran it is, leads to a degree of change with which some people, either at first or maybe ultimately, will be uncomfortable. But um, I think it's part of a, a, a community net benefit approach that's being adopted by councils, saying that we, we want to keep heritage, we want to keep historic buildings as they're perceived from the street, but we do have to allow for a, a much greater degree of change than was previously anticipated. The way we're going to do that is by retaining buildings to a certain depth and then allowing relatively tall buildings uh, behind those that retain fabric, particularly in activity centres and the like where we want to focus that density of, of living and density of working activity. The fact of the matter is that um, people don't want heritage interiors in a lot of cases. They want the modern interior, you know, the more contemporary design, designer kitchen, designer 
Mandarin, you know, all of, all of those things. So I suppose um, the public's opinion is moving a little bit in that regard. Um, and I think you mentioned the Windsor Hotel earlier as an example of this. Yes. Um, the Windsor, uh, or the arguments that were put forward for change at the Windsor highlighted the fact that there's been, a, if you like, a change in the popularity of uh, detailed uh, historic decorative schemes. In the 1980s and 1990s, when many inner urban uh, historic buildings were being uh, restored and, and revamped, um, the decoration of their interiors rode on a sort of wave of popularity and popular interest for uh, their rediscovery and reinstatement. And that was certainly seen in places like the Windsor, which has a, a wonderful historic interior and where, which was beautifully restored at the time. However, the Windsor owners now find that young and middle-aged people who might be having weddings or having receptions or parties are not interested in those environments. They, uh, the, the tide of enthusiasm for that type of space has well and truly ebbed and now people are looking for fresh, modern, interesting environments in which to do those things. And so, you know, the Windsor itself is proposing to um, cover over some of those uh, historic schemes with a more contemporary look. So that uh, very directly reflects a change in, in public attitudes. It, it's kind of uh, juxtaposed with the rise in interest and the, and the increased acceptance of historic buildings as seen from the street. People seem to be uh, remain happy to embrace an historic building as their uh, the, as the face of their home, but they're less interested in the historic interior as a living environment. Bryce, are we sometimes too purist in terms of new architecture that can only heritage places? I mean, do we need to dare a bit more? Yes, I, I think there's two points about that. One is that I think we need to be very careful in identifying our historic places, that we don't go too far and therefore stifle the opportunity for legitimate redevelopment and architectural experimentation in areas that really are of the lowest heritage merit and interest. Uh, that is part, has always been part of the implicit um, uh, bargain, if you like, between conservation and, and the future, that heritage controls are limited to those places that truly warrant them and change can happen outside. So that's, that's one concern, that heritage controls aren't introduced into too wide a range of places and prevent change legitimately happening elsewhere. The second point is that um, while there does always need to be a considered response to new built form in heritage places, uh, history, the history of the last two decades in particular has shown that architects can be very inventive and produce very uh, strong contemporary statements within heritage environments, uh, not on the basis of just carte blanche, but on the basis that they can find the right balance between a contemporary expression and a polite interface with the built form that's valued around them. That, so what that means is that 
you still need uh, an architect to go through uh, a considered response to the heritage environment, the streetscape, formal setting, and so forth. But uh, while in some instances a very traditional uh, design outcome is, is reasonable or can be permitted, in other instances a much more striking contemporary modern outcome uh, can potentially be accommodated. And what do you see on the near horizon in terms of heritage controls? Do, can you make any predictions as to what might be happening in the, in the industry moving forward? Uh, well, predictions are trippy things, <laughs> but um, uh, at the moment, heritage controls are ever-expanding and uh, the number of precincts in particular is, is seems to be constantly growing in, in most municipalities. My guess is that at some point that will cease and that the, uh, the juxtaposed pressures for densification and change uh, versus conservation uh, will find either a natural balance or else that the pendulum will swing the other way and there'll be a reconsideration of some uh, of the more uh, uh, altered heritage environments and perhaps even the potential for heritage controls to be removed. There's a natural reluctance amongst councils to remove heritage controls because they tend to be quite popular with residents. You know, they do prevent change, which is increasingly a matter of concern to the residents and, and, uh, and occupants of those places. But uh, I can see that at a state policy level, um, at some point there may well be an encouragement for councils to review precincts with a view to limiting them or even uh, diminishing them somewhat. Well, I think it's that links to our next question about hubris. What do you think of, uh, future generations will think of our generation? I mean, each generation thinks it's smarter than the previous one. What do you think the, fu the future generation will think of what we've done? Um, well, I think future generations will look back on the last 100 years and see that um, conservation as we administer it today has resulted from a reaction against um, and the forces of extreme change. You know, the last 100 years has seen a degree of change both of, of uh, destruction and also of development that's unprecedented in history. And so that's led to certain views about what should be conserved and how it should be conserved and, and how it should allow, how change should be allowed. I think that um, I would hope that future generations would be understanding that, um, that, that there was a nexus between the two, between the change in the past and, and the types of controls that are in place. But I can imagine that they may well have completely different attitudes to urban conservation one possibility would be that they might still venerate key individual signature buildings but have less regard, for example, for uh, urban conservation precincts. Uh, you know, there's every potential that in 50 years or 100 years uh, that urban conservation of the kind that we administer now over large parts of inner metropolitan Melbourne might be seen to be a sort of result of a sort of self-indulgence of an affluent society uh, that 
became increasingly relevant to uh, a world focused on uh, accommodation and upon energy uh, saving and transport difficulties. And it's interesting to reflect on the fact that very few futuristic movies, uh, post-cataclysmic movies in particular, I guess, uh, anticipate urban conservation areas. Um, yeah. You're thinking of Blade Runner? Thinking of Blade Runner, thinking of Mad Max, thinking of you know, um, a space odyssey and so forth. I think uh, even if you go back to Jules Verne, he was probably anticipating just the continued evolution of cities without uh, the retention of, of things in the past in the way that we uh, try to retain them today. So I can see that it's possible that the, the priorities of society may change in a quite dramatic way and, as I said, that urban conservation of the extent that we have today might be seen as, as an indulgence of this particularly affluent society that we live in. Now, Bryce, you've been involved in quite a few of your own heritage conservation and restoration projects. Can you um, describe a couple of those or any in particular? Well, our practice has been involved in the conservation of many historic buildings, whether they're houses, churches, um, prison complexes and the like. Uh, but at a more personal level, my wife and I have recently been restoring a house on the Bellarine Peninsula, a Corrigal homestead, and that's been uh, an enormous focus for, uh, for me and for my family, my wife in particular. It's um, uh, required enormous resources, both um, emotional and, um, and time-wise, uh, as well as financial, and, and, and a lot of critical thinking about the nature of conservation and about um, you know, the, the, the philosophical underpinnings of, of different approaches to the exterior and interior of, of a very old building, and uh, insofar as um, it was in poor condition when we purchased it, a very damaged building. So that's, that's been a particularly uh, important conservation project in, in my career. And the price understand is congratulations in order about that problem. So can you just explain that? Yeah. Oh, thank you, Peter. Yes, we um, received uh, our, our firm, along with um, Bruce Trithallen, who was involved with some of the interiors, uh, received uh, an award from the Victorian chapter of the Institute of Architects, and then more recently we received a, an award, a national award uh, from uh, the Institute of Architects for the conservation of that building, and that's will be very gratifying and exciting. And what did you learn in particular about doing your own project like that? That uh, you didn't know before? Did look, I think uh, not so much I learned something I didn't know before, although there are lots of novel um, matters to resolve that I hadn't specifically experienced before in terms of a particular roof type uh, and particular materials conservation issues. But um, the main thing I, I got out of it, I guess, was an increased appreciation <coughs> of the uh, attitudes, uh, importance, and if you like, vulnerability of owners um, in the face of conservation issues. Conservation is a very expensive process 
Um, it's a very demanding form of architecture, and yet almost all um, architectural projects are by definition very demanding. Um, so the conservation, I think, is just um, ramping up the level of difficulty another level. Uh, so uh, experiencing it as both uh, a conservation consultant and um, and also as a sort of project manager and owner, I think, gave me a greater appreciation of, of how some of my clients feel when we're in meetings, either with a council or with Heritage Victoria or even just an internal meeting with ourselves discussing how we're going to resolve particular matters and uh, and how they must, uh, they must either feel joy at something being resolved or sometimes feel absolute despair at um, the difficulties that they're faced with. Just out of interest, what was the time frame that it took from start to finish on that project? Well, the pro we, uh, uh, it was a five-year project for the conservation of the house and we had people on site all of that time. Um, we elected to take a very uh, a small team approach. The building was in such poor condition um, and there were so many unknowns about concealed aspects of structure and fabric that it was not readily possible to simply document conservation works, uh, form a contract with a builder and have the works done in a typical uh, contractual period. So instead we uh, managed to get a small group of fairly committed uh, trade people on site and we acted essentially as home builders and managed them uh, through a fairly slow process, but a process that gave an opportunity for things to be adjusted, changed, um, or improved upon as, as the process of discovery and, and conservation unfolded. So it was a long program, but it was one that we, we chose to have it that way. And what are you currently reading, watching, or listening that inspires you? Uh, well, if I read a lot of books, uh, reading is my main form of uh, escape from the pressures of work. So um, I read a lot of history uh, and also a lot of historical novels. Well, thank you, Bryce. Uh, this for our, this our 13th interview, PH survey. Next month we will interview Mark Shepard, one of Australia's premier urban designers. For further details, go to our website www planningexchange.org. Thank you, Jess. Thank you, Bryce. And that's it for Sweet November.